0: Reached episode six of the I Save That podcast. Uh, this is the top 10 patient safety concerns of 2019 edition of the podcast. Uh, I'm Ramsey Nazrallah, joined by Eric Sager, Director of Communications and Java Editor Chief, and Director of Clinical Education at the Association for Vascular Access, Judith Thompson. <laughs>
1: that's Hello.
0: two episodes
2: in a row that judy has been introduced that way
0: she's not in trouble we just try to get formal every now and then on the podcast yeah. guys guys ecri uh we're going to be talking about the ecri uh top 10 patient safety concerns on this episode and judy uh you know we're gonna we're gonna get to the reveal here in a second but what was your reaction when you saw what number nine was on the list and what's your overall impression of what Ecker's produced for 2019?
1: My first reaction is I uh, was so excited. It was giddy, almost like um, having goosebumps because we've been waiting so long for this to happen. So I couldn't be happier. In In concert with what the CDC has actually opened up for comment right now about looking at um, all hospital onset bacteremias, we're at a tipping point right now of really better patient care and patient safety. So I'm, I'm overly excited about this.
0: Yeah. It uh, it's been a long time coming. It's there, there's one major change that that Ava is going to need to incorporate into uh, a lot of its talking points. And our friend Shelly DeVries is going to have to make this change as well. We have been talking for years now about the overlooked risk of uh, complications of infection presented by peripheral IV cannulas. But with, with ECRI's top 10 patient safety concerns for 2019, infections from peripherally inserted IV lines is number nine. It's in the top 10. We can no longer say they are overlooked. They are now Ooh. just, they are looked. They're there.
1: I think we're still, not enough people know about this. Let's start there. So I think right now, today, we're not ready to get rid of that, that term.
3: It's but.
0: starting to fade out though, like the picture in Back to the Future. That is true. That is
1: true. Very much so. But I think we have to wait to see what the response is. And people need to take this to heart and understand that with the majority of lines going in are PIVs, that we need to start looking at those.
0: Yeah. And taking them seriously from insertion to care to maintenance to, well, let's, you know what, let's go right to the top 10, because um, part of, you know, we just talked about number nine, which is peripheral IVs. What if I told you uh, Eric and, and Judy, we're more casual now, and, and listeners, that six of the top 10 could be d- directly related to vascular access care. I would believe it. Quite
2: the shift. That's quite the, it's quite the statement.
0: It's the reveal behind the reveal. Number three on the list is burnout and its impact on patient safety. You think that might have a, a little bit to do with how vascular access uh, procedures, specifically peripheral IVs, are just sort of treated like something you learn on the job? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that it definitely has an impact to patient safety and I mean, patient, patient satisfaction for sure. That's
0: right. The, I mean, it's, it, it's got a broader application, but it, it absolutely overlaps with vascular access. Number six, detecting changes in a patient's condition. Uh, we have a very fragmented uh, continuum of care. Our newest special interest group uh, has been designed and scrambled to address how to streamline and defragment. Uh, that's, that, right. that's the, that's the consig. Consig. Yep. Um, that's number six, detecting changes in a patient's condition. Number seven, developing and maintaining skills. If only Ooh. there were an the association that that, <laughs> that had an educational offering to, to better – to spread vascular access, best practices far and wide. We should we should call it something like AVA Academy. What do you guys think? That would be pretty awesome. That would uh, be great. I'm all in on that. Great name. Right. That's, that's called foreshadowing, listeners. Uh, number eight, early recognition of sepsis across the continuum. You've got uh, – Shout out to Beth Gore's uh, presentation, Whose Line Is It Anyway? When you've got a patient going from one room to another, to another unit, to outside the hospital, to skilled nursing facility, to rehab, to having home infusion, you think that the person that's, that's addressing that patient's line understands what their baseline might look like?
1: No, the patient knows and the family knows best on that. And we don't listen to them.
0: So you're right. We also don't mm-hmm. give them en- enough education. That whole uh, developing right. and maintaining skills, there's a, there's a patient element to that. That, uh, that, that's been missing that uh, I will also, this is, we have too much foreshadowing in this episode already. Uh, Ava has developed a program that I'll actually be presenting at the Australian Vascular Access Society uh, meeting in, in Sydney next month uh, on how that's going to look. And you're going to be hearing a lot more about that on the show. Uh, number nine, we, we touched on, that's the peripheral IV line infection risk. You know, it's only number nine. It's not like it's number one think it's going to get higher yeah. in 2020. I
2: mean, beggars can't be choosers. We're just, I'm just, saying, it's
0: <laughs> We're just acknowledging that it's a, it's a, it's a risk, right? It's, right. It's finally, it, it's no longer a myth. And then number 10 is standardizing safety efforts across large health systems in this era of, of uh, conglomerates, of, of mergers. And, and you're you've, you've taking nine different hospitals in a 35-mile uh, radius from, uh, from a city, and now they all have the same logo. But they're not standardized because they all came from different places. They all have different employees. Uh, that's the same issue that, that applies to vascular access patients being shuttled from one part of the continuum to the other.
1: You know, and it also ties directly into number seven of developing and maintaining skills. Mm-hmm. So when these conglomerates merge and they say, okay, everybody, you're going to use X item now, the folks at a different system may or may not really understand that device. That's right. So, um, there's so much to this.
2: Yeah. So exciting. It- a lot of layers.
0: A lot of layers. Eric, we had a conversation with the good people at ECRI.
2: Right. What's coming up shortly after the break here, we're going to have a conversation with two people who were instrumental in getting number nine on this top 10 list, the infections from peripherally inserted IV lines. But to learn more first about what ECRI does, feel free to visit ECRI.org. That's E-C-R-I dot O-R-G. And if you have any questions for myself, Judy, or Ramsey, please feel free to send an email to podcast at avainfo.org. And we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Marsha Ryder, a research scientist whose major focus is medical biofilm infections and vascular access, and also the 2017 Suzanne Herbst Award winner at the AVA Scientific Meeting in Phoenix, Arizona, as well as uh, Jim Davis, a Senior Infection Prevention and Patient Safety Analyst and Consultant at ECRI Institute to chat with us a little bit this morning about the patient safety list that ECRI put out uh, a short while ago. I wanted to also introduce Judy Thompson, AVA's Director of Clinical Education, and Ramsey Nasrallah, AVA's CEO.
1: So excited to have you on the phone. Now, the ECRI top tens patient safety concerns was published. Number nine specifically, I think there's a couple that really pertain to vascular access, but number nine specifically, infections from peripherally inserted IV lines. That's pretty exciting to make the list. So I want to thank Jim, Marcia, and everyone at ECRI for one, um, PIV is making the list, but secondly, for being on this call so we can talk about it. So Jim, just to start off, could you talk to us about who is ECRI? Oh,
3: great. Um, so, no problem. ECRI, uh, we're basically an independent nonprofit. We're pretty much a trusted authority on medical practices and products that provide, hopefully, the safest, most cost-effective care. So, you know, we've been doing this for greater than 50 years at this point, so quite quite a while. And uh, we, we've we essentially built a reputation on uh, how we do rigorous evidence-based research. Our dedication to our—we uh, have a very strict conflict of interest policies. Um, you know, I can't have stock in any company related to anything we look at. Um, I actually, check my tax returns. So, you know, it's—it's it's a very interesting place to work as far as how we value that our, our independence and our ability to give an unbiased opinion uh, about uh, things we look at. The other things we do, are, you know, like this list, we uh, receive reports through the PSO, uh, or Patient Safety Organization that we run, one of the largest ones in the, in the country at this point. So we have about 2.8 million reports that come to us that we look at from a risk management perspective. But we pull out not only uh, events, but also we look at near misses, and uh, that's part of what we look at when we uh, when we put the list together. Um, Personally, I've been I've been interested in PIV infections for a long time, uh, and I think that um, it's awesome that they're, that they're on the list this year. Hopefully, we'll get some traction around uh, prevention, having people become more aware that PIVs can cause you know serious life-threatening infections.
1: Absolutely. Now, you mentioned patient safety organization. Can you delve into that a little bit more?
3: Sure. I'd, I'd be glad to. Way back in 2005, there was a, a patient safety act. It was a patient safety and quality improvement act of 2005. And that uh, essentially authorized the creation of what are known as PSOs or patient safety organizations. And the goal there was for the government to help uh, healthcare improve quality and safety by reducing or you know, trying to reduce the incidence of events that Adversely affect patients in a bad way. So in order to make that happen um, HHS or you know the Department of Health and Human Services and AHRQ uh, Published what they call the patient safety rule and that allowed uh, Organizations to kind of delve into this report collection phase to help educate and aid the members of the PSOs, so you would join a PSO with a hospital or healthcare provider. And what that act does is it lets AHRQ to list and designate the entities as patient safety organizations. So that's like an evaluation process, like AHRQ looks at you and says, okay, well, you have the expertise to do this. And what we do is we take the events, we treat it like it's essentially, you know, research uh, because we're getting all these reports. And what happens then is they fall out into topics and and buckets of issues that we produce guidance, uh, educational materials, toolkits, all kinds of things for the PSO members that are with us to help them implement um, not only how to prevent harm to the patients by what we've learned by looking at so many organizations. Like I said, we have 2.8 million reports to, to date um, so sort we of quite a large database that we mine. Get at what is happening, and our job is: what can we do from an implementation standpoint to help the hospitals and nursing homes or whoever else mitigate the things that can be prevented, like like PIV infection.
1: So, Jim, you mentioned all the reporting you get. Where do these reports come from? Because I know PIV infections, PIV complications, are grossly underreported.
3: That is a huge problem. It's One of the main reasons why uh, we wanted to draw attention to the PIV issue, we have members, so what you would do as a healthcare organization or a provider, you could join a PSO. It's actually acquired uh, in most states. Our members essentially, uh, if you ever, you know, back in the day we used to call it an incident report, right? Clinicians, physicians, risk managers, nurses, anyone can really enter uh, an event report into our PSO system. So we can, you know, and we, like I said, we collate, collect and analyze all those, those events. So basically anybody that's a member of ECRI's PSO or one of our back offices can report to directly to us. We're not the only PSO, but we're, we're one of the largest in the country. Thank so you. basically our members that report to us and okay. all that information is confidential. It's under patient safety work product, which is protected by the act.
1: That's great information. So what is the process for selecting the top 10 patient safety concerns each year?
3: Well, it's actually quite in-depth process. Um, so we take the list very seriously because essentially, you know, we're, 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 we're guiding practice, right? We're saying what's important for people to pay attention to. So we essentially rely on data regarding events, uh, concerns that are brought to us, and, some, and expert judgment. So, you know, we don't have to have um, you know, millions of reports to say something's a problem. We've had stuff on the list that have had a few reports that were really, really bad stuff happening. We look at not only the evidence that we have in the reports, the evidence coming up to us through folks like Dr. Ryder, uh, who I've worked with in the past on uh not only PIV uh infection related things, but also central line uh related infections. So, that list, we pull in all these experts from the clinical arena, from academia, from wherever uh, is appropriate based on the topic, and we, we look at the evidence and weigh the evidence, and we also pick things that we can do something about. And if we can't do anything about it, we actually keep looking at it to find the things to prevent or mitigate those risks. So it's a, it's, we have a whole team that comes together. So we'll bring a topic in. equity employees submit the topics based on their experience and what they're working on from a research perspective. Those uh, topics get uh, presented, you almost have to like defend your topic, so you have to have enough data, enough of an argument to say this is really happening, this is really a concern, it deserves to be on the list this year. To give an example, there's probably about 20 or 30 people that sit in a room uh, for a long time and deliberate on uh, you know what uh, is on the list considering all the expert opinion all the evidence all the published research and our reports so we try and put things on the list that that really really need attention and like again we can do something about it as far as implementation and prevention to make it worthwhile for the hospitals to focus their efforts on and other healthcare providers like ambulatory care and nursing homes but it's a it's a it's a lengthy process almost that's sometimes it's like defending a dissertation, but um, and, that's where, and that's where the evidence comes in, like I said, with with Dr. Ryder, so I figured, okay, you know, it's probably time to get PIVs on the list. What evidence do we need? Um, so we pulled out our events and said, yes, this is happening, most likely underreported because people don't know uh, when it comes to a PIV infection, um, which we talk about a lot, is, you know, the IV could have been removed yesterday, and it's out of sight, out of mind at that point. So they come in with, you know, they they either come well not come in, but they develop a bacteremia, and people attribute it to something else. Like maybe they have a central line, and the IV was left in too long; it should have been removed. If they have a central line, but that happens where you know you, you're taking care of a patient. They have a central line in. They have IVs in that they had before the central line was placed, and people kind of forget about them, and or remove them, and never and attribute the infection to the central line, not the PIV. Things like that, where we can come and say okay, well, look at your process. Do you have a process at all? How can we help you with that? And uh, looking at essentially mitigation, but drawing attention to what everybody takes for granted. Right? I mean, the last time I looked, there was 20 million PIVs <laughs> in, in the United States alone. At least. At Plus least. or minus, yeah. yeah. <laughs> minus a million? I don't, I don't know. But the last time I, the only literature I could find was was about 20 million. You guys probably know a little better, but you know, it's a common denominator. It doesn't matter whether you're a kid or you're a geriatric patient. Everybody gets an IV line, and does everybody need an IV line? I
1: I can imagine yeah. that meeting where you're basically defending your dissertation can get rather heated. Rather, I mean, it would be fun to be a fly on the wall in that room. I believe. Yeah,
3: it, it actually is fun. We don't. We don't get. You know, the, the cool thing about equity is we don't. It doesn't get heated. It's very Socratic. It's very academic. And whatever opinions are expressed, whether it's critique or not, at the end of the day, around here anyway, when we get critique, we all know it's to make the product better. It's not, it's not personal. So right. maybe, maybe defending a dissertation might have been a little harsh, but it's, it's, <laughs> uh, you need to come prepared. You know, you're 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 talking about something that is going to change practice in healthcare organizations by reading our list. So, we, A, we need to make sure we get it right, and B, we, we need to make sure that we have enough evidence to mitigate whatever the risk is that we're talking about, or if it's something like PIVs that needs attention and doesn't get it.
1: Well, I, for one, um, am very thankful because you did get it right. There's so much belongs here. But why did you think infections from PIVs are an important topic for patient safety?
3: I worked. A my, my, little bit about my background is uh, I started out in critical care. Did everything in critical care, from being a, a graduate nurse in critical care to a unit manager, then flipped over to infection control a, a you know a good while back. You know, working in a large teaching institution, of course there was a lot of PIVs but also a lot of central lines. So I started realizing, um, kind of noticed it as a clinician because I had a, a patient that will that I'll take with me forever, 40 or 50 year old guy, I can't remember off the top of my head, got a spinal abscess uh, with Staph aureus and Staph epi and the spinal abscess. Nobody could figure out, you know, what what the deal was, where it came. It had pretty bad arthritis, especially in his spine. And what wound up happening is, you know, had this abscess, got a bacteremia, developed this abscess, and the pressure from the abscess was so bad that we had to go in surgically because we were afraid that he was going to have some sort of. Uh, you know, par- paralysis as a result of the pressure on his spine. Unfortunately, he did have uh, some paralysis because of pressure on the spine. It was only through a, a, an incredibly extensive investigation done at the clinical level that we figured out that it was from his PIV. The, the introduction of the bacteria uh, and the result in bloodstream infection and subsequent abscess embedded in the spine was traced back to uh, a PIV that was left in too long. So that was my personal you know, like, okay, holy crap, as a critical care nurse, I took PIVs as, you know, it's, it doesn't hurt anybody, right? It doesn't <laughs> cause bacteremias. Sartre lines make bacteremias, as well, no, not really. Any break in the skin is you're breaking down the person's natural defense. So when I got to ECRI about eight years ago, these things they're you know, clinically kind of stick with you. So I started digging around, you know, looking for evidence that PIVs were. An issue both in the clinical literature and our reports here. You know, lo and behold, I found that there was enough evidence. I think uh, it was like 2012 or 13. Um, I, I wrote an article, you know, about the. I was called. Uh, it was about dwell time, basically, and, and why are we leaving IVs in? You know, for signs and symptoms of phlebitis or other things, and you know, they're saying remove it for an indication, and they would list fever. So you know, I'm, I'm thinking oh, if you have a fever, you already have the infection. So it's kind of like you put the the cart before the horse. So, you know, what are we, you know, again, uh, looking for mitigation, so kind of drawing attention. So I wrote that article, actually, Marcia uh, hooked up with me. Well, we we were talking way before that about central lines uh, with timing of infection. So we started to bring the same metrics in the PIVs and found that, you know, and as did Mackie and other folks uh, way back in the day, uh, found that you know when, when you're looking at 72, you know three days, maybe four days, but not the 96, and not that's clinically indicated uh, as maybe a prevention. And the evidence is still kind of coming in on that. So you know that's essentially how it progressed to the list because um, I felt, you know, as many others did at ECRI, that it was a uh, the, the tip of the iceberg that we could see here given the data that we have and drawing attention to it so people so it's on the radar, so there are so people do surveil for it from an infection control standpoint. So they do put processes in place uh, to prevent things that can be very serious and, and not attributed to the line, like in my example, they don't we only figure that out way too late. The other thing too is the IV teams. We we if you're lucky enough to still have an IV team or, or you know, because in my experience most of the most of the IV teams were Taken away from a cost perspective, but you know I think the reinstitution of clinical experts at the bedside through the mechanism of IV teams we probably should be going back to that, my opinion, but uh, you know why would you remove those folks from the bedside uh, from a cost savings perspective? So again, hopefully, by surveilling from PIVs and, and that type of thing, we can build the body of evidence. And make the business case again uh, if your IV team has been, you know, dismantled or redistributed or, or whatever that looks like in your institution.
1: Jim, I couldn't yeah. agree more. Vascular access specialists have – there's data out there that sh- proves that business case without a doubt that by investing in the specialist, you can lower infections, better outcomes, longer dwells. I'm excited okay. to hear your viewpoint as well. Now, there's – you've talked about – PIVs being underreported quite possibly, and I couldn't agree more. And I think part of it, again, is um, our friend Russ Nazoff, as said before, it starts with the name. It's peripheral, and it's yep. not central. It's inconsequential. Some of the other concerns with PIVs is we don't think about them. We don't train our, our new grads and even our our folks that come in. We don't check competencies. So there's so many factors that go with this. And I know Dr. Ryder's done a lot of work um, related to PIVs and, and biofilm. So Dr. Ryder, what is your take on all of, all of this, with this being listed in the top 10
4: with ECRI? Yes, well, thank you. Um, it has been for some time great concern, uh, especially from the biofilm and the pathophysiology of infections there are so many components of this that we have not um, instituted or uh, established formal policy and procedure and interventions to prevent peripheral infection. Now, we need to also expand this um, beyond, because when we say PIV, we generally think about the short, you know, one and a quarter inch peripheral IV catheter. But today, you know, our expansion of expert technology has allowed us to have multiple types of devices to place in the periphery. So that and our terminology needs to come around to address that as well. But nonetheless, we have the short peripheral catheter, we have the extended dwell peripheral catheter, and we have the midline catheters and, and other names that <laughs> are, are out there. But all of them are at the same risk. All of those are at the same risk as the central venous catheter. And we have to go back to the underpinnings of the pathophysiology of catheter-related infection and the science of bacterial transfer. So when you take those two sciences and then apply them to what are the components of care that a patient needs when they receive a vascular access device of any kind, So they apply across the board. So if we kind of take a little, some bullet points there of what those components of care are, we begin with device selection, vein assessment, preoperative skin preparation, sterile uh, catheter insertion, dressing application, skin protection, stabilization, monitoring, and then in the monitoring, if there is signs of a complication, how do we diagnose? And how do we manage those complications? That's a long list. And I'm sure all of us understand that those components and how to address them and manage them and procedure are not included in our nursing curriculum. And it's certainly not included in the curriculum when they uh, are hired or employed at a hospital or an outpatient facility. In the recent uh, survey uh, done by INS and the paper by Pratt and all, it's very disheartening in some ways to observe that of all those things that I listed, 80% or more of those components are provided by the RN at the bedside. And so from that perspective, you know, we have a huge educational uh, effort to be made. I'm not sure, we, we've been trying to do the behavioral approach to all this for a lifetime, and it does not seem to be working. So that goes around to Dim's point uh, in regard to, and yours, Judy, uh, the need uh, to understand that this is a specialty. There is science behind it, and it's going to require Specialized vascular access teams, not only the vascular access specialists, but a multidisciplinary approach of services, uh, especially in the infection area, including infection preventionists, infectious disease uh, physicians, risk management, and surveillance.
1: Couldn't agree more. And a couple other things you said, Marcia, You're right. The, there's an article that was I, I had the pleasure of being one of the authors on, um, Hunter et al., that talked about the what the state is of education that nurses get in nursing school. And it's scary that something that every nurse comes out of school wanting to do and first thing they get to do basically independently is place a PIV. And there's a disconnect between who's going to teach them the skill set. Facilities believe it's going to be nursing schools. Nursing schools think it's the facility. the The patient ends up being the training board which is almost criminal.
4: Yes, that is what we have done in our traditional approach to this. But we have to turn that uh, very clinician and administration focused model into a patient-centric model. And I just talked about the components of care, okay, that are, are needed. Uh, from the patient's perspective, what do they need? What do they want? What is the outcome they expect? And if I were a patient, I would expect to receive that, have the appropriate device selected for me with my participation, have the uh, device inserted uh, uh, without risk or infection, have the device monitored and removed without failure. And of course, we know right now that we're not close <laughs> to that. So we're going to have to, it's going to require an entire reengineering of our approach, uh, particularly to the peripheral vascular access devices.
3: Can so I just jump in the dovetail on what Marshall was getting at too? So, you know, I have this colloquial saying that I use when I when I teach, and it's the right patient in the, the right patient with the right line at the right time. And you know, I kinda of stole a little bit from the, the five rights of medication administration, right? The right dose, right patient, right route, and all that. But, you know, why is why don't we have those 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 rights for IV insertion? Not only that, but um, everything that Marshall was talking about, uh, the broad reach there, but you know, it's also not just about insertion, right? Why why do why do central lines get dressing reviews every day and there's reviews for line necessity every day that's documented? And all those things around the bundle there, with central lines. But do we do we even look to see if the patient needs the IV line every day, the peripheral? And you're right. I mean, when you would say peripheral, it's almost like you're setting it up that ah, you know, it doesn't matter, right? It's almost like a word play. But when we think about um, peripherally inserted uh, central, you know, uh, pick lines, peripherally inserted. Uh, when we first started the challenge of decreasing uh, bacteremia from central line-related uh, bacteremia, people started putting in more picks because they had the word peripheral in there. Well, <laughs> it says peripheral, it can't be central, but it is central. It's peripherally inserted, and then that's why uh, if you if you, you know National Healthcare Safety Network with the CDC, where all of those folks like me who uh, report our infections. They came out with guidance and said to clarify, yes, pick lines count when you're counting uh, your denominators, and they need to be included in your surveillance. So I think it's almost like the same kind of thing, where it's it's almost like we need to change the name, although we won't do that, right? But um, I think you, you struck on a good point there about that almost dismissive mentality that peripheral lines are, yeah, no one ever gets hurt from them.
1: I agree. I agree. I agree. I agree, and that was one of Russ's, Russ Nazov's, big points that he was making. He said we need to change the name. Again, we're not changing the name, but just by saying it's peripheral, inconsequential, it's most people say it's just a PIV, and for the patient, it's not just a PIV. Oh, it's the okay. thing that's tracking right into their blood system. Now, I know, Marcia, you talked a little bit about not having a robust curriculum for new grads and or for nursing students. And that is something that Ava is definitely tackling right now. We're in peer review of a robust curriculum that when it's finished and completely funded, we are actually going to give it to any medical school, nursing school, allied healthcare school. So that will be a digital push if they want it. That's something that Ava is going to do to try to help close the gap of education for peripheral intravenous therapies that's awesome i'm excited about that (laughs) as it comes out so hopefully by the end of the year we will have the robust education funded and finished but it's It's a nice
2: nice little plug there judy well done thank
1: you thank you i'm working (laughs) on that and on top of it for our ava scientific meeting in october you talked about the components of care marcia so I'm excited. This is a, a little bit of a peek into the conference, but Jim and Marcia, along with Beth Gore, are going to be talking about components of care and how ECRI has this top 10 list from ECRI has an impact to what we do every day. Pretty excited to see you guys in Vegas as well.
4: Yes, uh- I'm, uh, I think it, we mentioned earlier, and Jim uh, commented about part of the role of ECRI then in introducing, what's the point of pointing this out if you're not going to have some kind of activity that's going to implement a change and and help reduce the risk of the problem? So certainly Ava's effort at trying to move some um, uh, broadened or expanded um, education into the nursing schools or even into new higher uh, employees in the hospital is a, is a very good effort at trying to tackle the problem on an immediate basis. But in the long term, again, as we spoke earlier, especially if we're trying to reach the and address all of the components of care, because there are gaps there are gaps in the care, especially now with the midline catheters and so forth, where we have so much work to do there, we, we don't any, even have any scales or any monitoring measures uh, to be able to determine complications with midlines. So there's a lot of work to be done. And I know that uh, Ava, and if we particularly look at the components of care and expanding the vascular access teams, into a much larger framework and model of a multidisciplinary vascular access service that we might be able to fill in those gaps and work together for the benefit of the patient.
3: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, that is something that, um, you know, when I was working uh, at the hospital I was at, the IV team, from an infection prevention standpoint, had a huge impact so they helped me uh, surveil for things like PIV uh, related issues and not only that but they actually would do my uh, surveillance and my spot checks on Central Line, Central Line dressings. Uh, we had them involved in multiple quality improvement uh, activities because even, even the she- secret shoppers uh, for hand hygiene because you know they're they're used to walking around the units. They're used to being seen, and they embrace that work because I mean, hand hygiene, right? That's not important when you're putting in a PIV, right? Wrong, <laughs> Wrong. no. The, hand hygiene and, and peripheral access go hand in hand. No pun intended. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that when you're looking like, okay, you know, I don't have an IV team, or my IV team was taken away for what, whatever reason you know, how do you make that business case? And I think folding them, folding those professionals from the IV, you know, multidisciplinary IV teams into, you know, what does it look like from a quality surveillance perspective? Can we do point prevalence? All of those things that uh, these teams can do to benefit patients, to benefit the organization, and, you know, completely biased on my end, to benefit infection prevention and control uh, activities in the hospital, uh, you know, it's, it's huge and, you know, I'm hoping people uh, start to realize that, but it's not just, oh, that nurse that looks at the, the IV, it's, oh, that nurse, physician, or whoever is looking at a whole process for quality when it comes around. PIV insertion, maintenance, central line insertion, maintenance, dialysis catheters, all the midlines, all the picks. Plus, other quality related metrics that the IV team should feel important about, like hand hygiene. We even had uh, uh, folks on the IV team surveilling for some of the uh, ventilatory uh, pneumonia prevention targets, like, you know, had a bed elevation. They're there, they didn't mind. Um, So, you know, there's multiple ways that you could use those professionals uh, to improve quality. And that's, again, one of the reasons why we we, we put it, we, we stuck it pardon me again (laughs) on the list (laughs) Um, Uh, because that's bad (laughs) uh, sorry I had to but you know it's 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 it's, we put things like that on the list to get to give people some evidence on okay how can I change practice do I need to bring my IV teams back Uh, do I need to make my IV team that I still am lucky enough to have more effective from a general perspective hugely hugely important
1: ECRI ECRI is this an acronym? Does it stand for something? Is it just, we want to just call call you ECRI?
3: Well, ECRI AC- is what we go by now. But I'll, I'll let the cat out of the bag. Back when we first started, uh, Joe Noble started the company. He was a, uh, a physician, surgeon, and it was he was frustrated uh, on, on many levels about not having equipment and supplies available from a systems perspective when essentially a few times coding patients so he developed, you know, he looked, he was a systems guy, looked at the processes and came up with what is known as the max cart or essentially the first crash cart to be put in service in hospitals. And it's actually, we had it at the Smithsonian for a while, uh, one of the prototypes. It's still there actually. Basically, he named the company that he built with his own hands, uh, laid the bricks with him and his, his team. It's the Emergency Care Research Institute.
1: Very good. Thank so now you. Now we just go by ECRI. I like that. That ECRI's great.
3: <laughs> Yeah, because, basically, we, we felt that we just went with Acre because it, it, it the company over 50 years evolved to include, not a, we still do emergency care research, but we do so much more from a risk management perspective, from the National Guideline Clearinghouse, which is, we, we just, you, I don't know if you heard, but that was, the funding through the government was eliminated, so we actually kept it going because the clinicians need that stuff. So we just do so much more that the name, calling it Emergency Care Research Institute was kind of limiting. So we just go by Acre.
1: I like it. I like it. Jim, you mentioned the monitoring of dressings for PIVs, for central lines, for dialysis, port access, any any of that for monitoring. But if we had a true multidisciplinary vascular access team, not only could they monitor, they could put all those devices in. And instead of turfing it off to the next department saying, Hey, they have chronic kidney disease. I really can't put a pick in this patient, nor I sh- or I shouldn't. Right. I'll, I'll put in a central line. I'll go in their IJ. So that's another asset of having a fully functional multidisciplinary vascular access team. That... Couldn't
3: agree, yeah. Couldn't agree more. I mean, what what I liked about uh, working closely with the team I had was, especially in in the dialysis patients, uh, you know, the renal renal deficiency folks. Where we're trying to preserve their vasculature for their shunts and grafts and things like that. And we don't want to be just arbitrarily popping lines in these folks. So, you know, having that professional look at the patient and go, okay, we can do this and still save the patient's vasculature for the future when they really, really are going to need it. Um, and the other thing, too, I wanted to bring up was not only that, that expertise, but um, as those folks from, you know, the IV professionals, uh, when they're looking at those dressings, when they're looking at those lines, it is the perfect vehicle to give those expert tips, tricks, just-in-time education to the nurses at the bedside. We used to have them go around for competencies with a cart. So, you know, it's really hard to get, you know, in, in, in my example, 70 ICU nurses through competencies for central lines. On all shifts, but we have the IV team folks go around with a cart and do simulations with the nurses on, on insertions and things like that um, to sharpen their skills. Because, you know, the IV team can't physically put in every peripheral line, but we can make sure the people that are doing it are trained not only from a nursing school perspective or wherever, but also those, those casual competencies where the staff's comfortable coming up talking to that nurse, or when we have that difficult stick, you know, the dehydrated 90-year-old 100-pound female with onion skin, do we really want a nurse, you know, an ICU nurse to try and spend 25 minutes putting a line in when they, they need to give fluid? Or can we call a team of experts, not saying the ICU nurse isn't an expert in putting in lines, they may or may not be, but being able to call an expert and say, okay, we can get you a, a line real quick, but, this person's going to need a midline. We'll get it on the schedule, and we'll make it happen. Right. Right. Precisely. So, you know, right now, that's missing.
1: The other aspect is maybe that ICU nurse has not done a sterile dressing change in the last three months because nothing was needed in their last three months. And now they have a patient that requires central line dressing changes or mm-hmm. peripheral line dressing change that should be a sterile change as well. So yeah. there's, and there's anyway, that,
3: you know. There's a, there's a bigger role in that, too, because when, when uh, we're making purchasing decisions uh, about, you know, what type of dressing, um, how, does that dre- how can we put on that dressing without um, pistoning the pick line in and out of the patient's skin? Is there a better dressing out there? Is there a better application technique? The IV team should be at the table for the purchasing decisions for all of those devices, all of those dressings, and anything related to that, because, you know, how does it happen these days? Ah, it's cheaper,
1: let's buy it. Very true. And talking about PIVs again, um, since this is a big topic here, you mentioned clinically indicated versus um, a timing on peripheral IVs. And I know you and and Dr. Ryder have uh, strong opinions on that. I'd love to hear it.
4: Well, I I think um, at least in the U.S., Jim was probably instrumental in – formally with evidence documenting the time to infection uh, in Staph aureus bacteremia with peripheral IV vines. And since then, there has been multiple papers uh, written uh, indicating the uh, increased risk for Staph aureus bacteremia with peripheral IVs in place greater than four days. Uh, Of course, they occur before four days, but there was a, an increased risk uh, beyond that time point. And again, this is something in the science and pathophysiology and especially biofilm-related infections that we've known for a very long time, and that certainly is continuing to to bear out. And that's where I was alluding to the science of bacterial transfer. Uh, I'll come back to that in a moment. But I believe that the clinically indicated site change is a good framework, but in order to mitigate the risk of infection, I mentioned we are going to need to re-engineer and rethink our our models for how we provide the components of care for prevention. So, uh, to start with, uh, we're going to need to, and I know everybody, when I have said this at the podium uh, the last few years, or I talked with the folks in play, person. And I talk about we need to uh, convert to a sterile insertion technique for all, peripheral devi- for all vascular access devices. I get eyes rolling, and the response is, it'll never happen. But if it doesn't happen, we're going to continue to see this problem. There is absolutely no scientific evidence that demonstrates that a clean technique with a peripheral IV is safer and or equivalent to sterile insertion so we're going to have to think out of the box and we're going to have to be creative in some technology about how to make that happen that's the first step and then in uh, in relation to monitoring and all of the components of care that i outlined earlier we're going to have to create a new framework about how we're going to address those And again, um, I believe, and we've talked a lot about, necessity for specialized services in order to be able to do this. So if we do want to go in that direction, which of course is a benefit to the patient, before you convert to that model, there's going to be a lot of work to do and a lot of education and a lot of technology changes to be made. In the meantime, we're going to have to be very careful, and especially we've talked a lot about surveillance, re education uh, of our staff. Shelly DeVries, of course, has had an outstanding model and has demonstrated interventions that are needed in order to improve those outcomes, but it took her years to do that. So we have to take a deep breath, step back, understand the problem, and be able to re engineer with pathophysiology based interventions. Thanks, Marcia.
1: Yeah. Jim, think, your thoughts?
3: Yeah, couldn't agree more. I, I mean, it, it is a, a big stone to move, but worth moving for patient safety. The interesting point that that Marcia mentioned was sterility of the process, right? So we c- call it out right in the in the brief on the top 10 under under inf- uh, peripheral infections is, you know, the staff needs to to show reverence for that line as they're putting it in you know when I actually said in the article, they should treat it like they're making an incision. You'd never make an incision clean right That's under the best circumstances that you could possibly get from skin prep to using sterile gloves and all that stuff and you know is the science there i I think it's coming, but Honestly, when you think about it, it passes the sniff test, but that's probably the right thing to do because you are putting a hole in someone, whether it be big or small. So, you know, what's the difference between that and an incision? Essentially, it's an incision, but it's just really small. You know, I completely agree with, um, you know, having peripheral IV basically treated with the same reverence as we would treat the central line now. I'm saying now because we never we've not al- we have not always done that with central lines, but I think now we, we probably do. And just, you know, and the common sense of it uh, from, you know, you're never going to be able to do it all the time, so like in an emergency situation, y- you might have to sacrifice some of the optimal insertion environment, uh, you know, what? so you might not be able to do a good skin prep and things like that, but having professionals, uh, like in an IV team, knowing, That that line was placed suboptimally because of the clinical situation. And that should be top on their list for surveillance and even changing when the clinical situation allows itself, right? Because we're always weighing risks and benefits and timing. But, uh, you know, I think that's a huge thing. Just going back to PIVs that are placed in the field and, you know, usually in the anticube and usually too big for the patient (laughs) and and the, the mechanical issues with all that. And a lot of hospitals that I'm familiar with um, try and get those lines out um, if not immediately within a day but who's tracking those who's who's, who's is it on the radar it's usually the, the infection preventionists if they're lucky enough to get a phone call that you know that, that there's a piv that was placed in the field and then we say why isn't it out yet but you know who's tracking that so there's just huge opportunities that, that yeah that, Jim, I, I I couldn't agree with you more there because uh, exactly
4: to your point Uh, Is that all of these things that we've talked about and all of these gaps we're we're seeing um, in in our practice, part of that problem, I think what he's alluding to, is that in those components of care, who is owning this space? Who is owning the responsibility for vascular access device? From the, uh, from the beginning the patient receives it until their transition of care or their readmission all along their hospital course. Right now, nobody is owning it.
3: And right. that's like where we
4: to... have to turn that around into a different type of framework and model uh, for the provision of vascular access care.
3: Yeah, totally agree. And, you know, I'll draw a similarity with another profession, right? So with a wound care and ostomy specialist, um, they meet with the patient before, you know, because the patient's gonna need an ostomy. They meet with the patient pre-op, and they talk with the patient to decide, you know, where is this unfortunate hole with a bag going to be on your body, not only from a functional perspective, but from the, how you dress and where does it fit, and what spot on your belly, basically, is a good spot where the dressing won't kink or leak, and then um, they follow up with the patient afterwards and teach them care and all that. It's the same thing. <laughs> but is. why is nobody <laughs> it? Right. You know, it's, it's 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 bizarre to me that we have specialists available that we're underutilizing, and uh, and that again, you know, we need to make that business case. We need to make it important. What I'm trying to do, and I think everybody on the call is trying to do.
4: Yeah, from that perspective, I mean, we have we have come so far, especially with Ava as an organization, to establish. And uh, have high-level expertise with our vascular access teams, but right now, in our in our current model, we are primarily focused on insertion, and that that's a huge space. And we've done excellent, and we've we've uh, with our technology, our skills, and our capabilities. But now we have to think about the patient, the gaps in the care and the components of care and move our model and our vascular access specialty well beyond the insertion phase to cover all the facets of care uh, for the protection of the patient. And this is something, again, we're going to talk about and uh, propose to try to uh, close those gaps and take ownership uh, with a vascular access multidisciplinary service, take ownership of the vascular access space.
1: Couldn't agree more guys and thank you so much for the call today. This has been great. Um I'm excited to see you guys in Vegas to talk more about this. So I appreciate your time. Thank you for having us, Judy. Oh my my pleasure. Thank
3: you again.
2: Thank you everyone. Hello everyone, Eric back again with information on some upcoming AVA network events. This coming Monday, April 15th, Tax Day, San Van hosts friend of the program, Shelly DeVries, for a discussion on dressing disruption at the Butcher Shop restaurant in San Diego. Networking starts at 6 p.m. local time, with dinner and the presentation getting going around 645. One CE is available. Next Thursday, April 18th, brings network events in three different states. First, WisVan invites you to an evening of networking, education, food, and fun with Sarah Owens offering a presentation on utilizing lean principles and other strategies to decrease CLABSI rates. That starts at 5 p.m. local time at the Bonefire Grill in Madison, Wisconsin, and again, 1CE is available. Flavan also welcomes Dr. p P2 Devgon on Thursday evening, the 18th, at 6.30 p.m. in Jacksonville. Dr. Devgon is set to review the approaches to blood collection starting around 7 p.m., And finally, CaliVan invites you to its network meeting with Amy Barden-Spencer on Thursday the 18th at Morton's Steakhouse in Anaheim. Amy will lead a discussion on reducing the triad of complications, malposition, thrombosis, and infection. That starts at 6.30 p.m. local time. One CE is available for the CaliVan network event as well. So all three events on Thursday the 18th have one CE available.
0: You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud.
2: David would like to thank Jim Davis from ECRI and Dr. Marsha Ryder for taking the time to discuss the ECRI top 10 patient safety concerns list and this pivotal step in vascular access care. As always, thanks to Dabney Coleman and thanks to you our loyal listeners.
0: The information discussed on the I save that podcast is solely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information that we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine as cited in section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this video or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.